0: This episode is being recorded on December 24th and India is in ferment. Protests are ongoing across the country in response to this Government Citizenship Amendment Act and the state is cracking down on innocent and defenseless citizens with incredible violence. The reports that have been coming out of UP, for example, are just horrendous. I had an episode last week with Srinath Raghavan that gave deep historical context to the notion of citizenship in India, the history of the NRC, the troubled history of Assam, the current consolidation of Hindutva and student politics. I recommend you check that out. At this moment in time, all the focus is on the BJP's radical social agenda and all the dangers it poses for our nation. So why am I doing an episode on economics? Because I believe economics matters. People often think of economics as an arcane abstract subject, numbers and graphs floating in the air above us that don't actually have an impact on people's lives. That could not be further from the truth. Everything in our lives is shaped by economics and often by economic policies we cannot control. Decided somewhere far off by social engineers who believe they can design society. Influenced by special interests who are experts at redistributing money from the poor to the rich. This is not a problem of this government alone. For decades we have suffered from bad economics and the poor have suffered the most. Perhaps that's why we have even normalized it and we take it for granted. But we must not. Bad economics has a humanitarian cost. Economics matters. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. One of the reasons that the BJP won in 2014 was a consequence of the bad economics of previous governments, especially the UPA right before it. Many people who voted for the BJP in 2014 did so assuming that they would not further the social agenda and they do economic reforms. Well, we can see what's happening on the social front. As for economics, at first they carried out no reforms at all and then they progressively carried out what I can only describe as economic deforms, which only damaged the economy. I've had many episodes on demonetization and the botched implementation of GST, both of which basically helped devastate our economy. Those episodes will be linked from the show notes. In a nutshell, instead of helping to free our markets further, we now have less free markets and lower growth. Mahatma Gandhi once said that he would judge every policy by what impact it had on the poorest of poor Indians. And that is exactly my yardstick. It has been estimated that every 1% of GDP growth in India takes 2 million people out of poverty. If that growth goes down, it has a humanitarian cost. It's a human tragedy. And that growth has unquestionably gone down in recent years. In this episode, as the year draws to a close, I'm only going to focus on 2019 where we started the year, what were our causes for hope and despair, and how have we performed through this year. My guest for this episode is Vivek Call, also known as the Shah Rukh Khan of economics. Every time some news comes that has anything to do with the economy, there is an outpouring of requests on Twitter for Vivek's take on the matter. Vivek, welcome to The Scene and The Unseen.
1: Thanks, Amit, for having me.
0: So, as we are sort of, you know, one of the constant criticisms you get on Twitter from people is that, Vivek, why don't you write about good news once in a while? It's always bad news, bad news. What's your response to that?
1: <laughs> I mean, as I as I tweeted out recently, if you want good news, you should follow the Twitter handle of uh, the Press Information Bureau <laughs> and uh, the various ministries uh, of the government of India. I mean, they'll give you all the good news that you want. So...
0: And I guess what you do as an economist is just look at the numbers and talk about what the numbers show, and if then what. The yeah, I mean, show. so
1: broadly, yes. I mean, which is uh, how it is, and at least in in, in the last few years, uh, I mean, since demonetization happened, there has hardly been anything good to talk about. I mean, a couple of things notwithstanding. I mean, like uh, if if you look at how the insolvency and the bankruptcy code has gone. Uh, it can be called a, a sort of a partial success. I mean, despite the fact that it was launched uh, with very little preparation and the fact that our legal system wasn't really uh, you know, ready for it, it has uh, managed to deliver a few good things, especially given the fact that some of the largest corporates who had defaulted uh, on their loans, have lost control of their companies. And I think that is very, very important, because, you know, more than the recovery, I mean, recovery is important. But even if recovery does not happen, and uh, decent recovery doesn't happen, and corporates lose control of the company, the message that it sends across is very, very strong. So in the years to come, any corporate who previously has been in the habit of uh, defaulting on loans and getting away with it will uh, think more than twice, uh, you know, before doing anything like that, because he's likely to lose uh, control of his company. So I think that's that's one good thing that's uh, clearly happened in the last few years. The other good thing, again, I mean, this is not uh, something specific to this year, but uh, so, you know, uh, up until a few years back, there used to be a funny home loan deduction that used to be available to the taxpayer. So if you bought your first uh, home, the total interest that you could uh, take as a deduction was uh, limited to around one and a half lakh rupees, which was later raised to two lakh rupees. But if you bought your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or whatever, your 10th home, the entire interest on your home loan could be taken as a deduction from your taxable income as long as you uh, declared a notional rent and this was a huge tax saving device for uh, especially for people at uh, senior levels uh, in corporate india and i mean one thing that i never f- sort of figured out is was why should the government of india Encourage people to buy a second, third, or a fourth home. I mean, I can understand encouraging people to buy their first home and giving them a limited tax deduction. But uh, so, so Arun Jaitley did away with that in one of the budgets. I thought that was also a great move. So these are, you know, two good decisions that I can uh, immediately think about.
0: So. and and uh, you know and i of course don't have any home so uh, no, you, you, you know advice, so. none of this makes a difference to me or I'm podcaster home but the largest sort of question i want to ask is you know as someone who's commented on economics for a decade and a half what happens to the economy is often A consequence of decisions taken long ago. There's a big lag sometimes between an economic policy actually being announced and implemented and then with the results of that being felt. And you know, one example of this which people tout is that some of Vajpayee's reforms, they started actually showing their effects only in UPA1 and the UPA1 gets credit for those numbers. And similarly, a lot of what has uh, gone wrong with uh, the economy today, in a sense, started with the bad loans, so to say the phone loans policy of the UPA2 government, especially when Pranab Mukherjee was finance minister. And I, of course, had a great episode with Pooja Mehra which really elaborates on um, those sort of events in granular detail. And a lot of what is, uh, what 2019 started with, a lot of what we have seen unfolding through 2019, uh, and tell me if you agree, is essentially uh, the inevitable consequences of uh, DEMON and uh, the Bosch implementation of GST. Like we thought, at least I thought, that DEMON, when it was announced... I thought on the same day that this is going to devastate the economy. But it took a while for that to actually happen. Or if it did happen immediately, it took a while for those numbers to come. But this year, there can pretty much be no doubt that the full consequences mm-hmm. of the bad economic management of the last few years is now unfolding. What do you right. think?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I agree with you completely on that. See, I think what happens is, and this is you know more anecdotal than data-driven, and because I've seen some of my friends struggle with it. You know, when you're running a small enterprise and you start facing headwinds, you don't shut it down immediately, right? Because, I mean, you you started it and that's the only thing you do. So it takes time for you to sort of realize that this is not working. Now, I guess that's that's something that's happened because of, uh, one, uh, demonetization and the botched up implementation of GST. Uh, the informal sector and the smaller players in the formal sector have, over a period of last uh, two to three years, uh, been facing a lot of pressure on the performance front. And that pressure is now you know starting to show and uh, it's triggered into the overall broader economy as well. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that completely.
0: And, and the thing to remember here is also that economists use a term called welfare shocks. And what is a welfare shock? What happens is that when something like uh, demonetization happens and, uh, you know, somebody who's running a business on the margins, in the informal sector. And remember, he's on the informal sector not because he wants to evade the law, but because of the panoply of bad laws and regulations we have which force many entrepreneurs into the informal sector. And if someone on the margins like that goes out of business, it is not the case that when the economy gets back, he can just, uh, you know, uh, come back and start the business again. Like, for example, I may have a business running two ACs. I can't afford to run two. I start running one. When things get better, I put the second AC back on. But that's not how this works. These people suffer what is called welfare shocks where uh, once they are done, they are completely done. And, you know, they just don't come back. They're down for good. They just fall from that status level. They might go slip back below the poverty line if that's where they came from. And the other problem there, and I also wanted to ask you about this, is that it's very hard for people to get a grip on it because there is actually no data from the informal sector.
1: Yes. So there's very little data that actually comes out in a formal way for the informal sector. But there are enough, I mean, if you look at a lot of the uh, industry, small industry associations, they have put out a lot of data over the last few years, which tells you that a lot of small enterprises have uh, been destroyed in the aftermath of uh, demonetization and a botched up implementation of the GST. I mean, uh, you know, a great example is a place like Tirupur, which used to be a global hub for producing t-shirts. And uh, you know, the mess that the city got into uh, after demonetization is very well documented. And a lot of players uh, operating in Tirupur were uh, basically, you know, small players who sort of uh, employed up to 50 people. So, uh, you know, bits and parts of it are pretty well documented. Obviously, it's not documented at uh, overall uh, economic level. Uh, Having said that... uh, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, when demonetization happened, most corporates like the idea because what they thought was that the informal sector will now get formalized and they will uh, benefit because of it, because their business will go up. But what they did not realize was that if the informal sector of the country gets destroyed, the purchasing power or the consumption power of people who used to work in that informal sector also comes down, you know, and that has also impacted uh, the corporate uh, revenues and earnings in a big way uh, over the last few years. Another point I wanted to make here was that, you know, this, and I mean, this is something I've said before, but it is important to say it again, is that uh, over the years, uh, you know, the informal sector in India has often been linked to the black economy, right? Which is partly true. Yes, I mean, people who are making money there do not pay income tax. But you also need to take into account uh, the fact that a lot of people or in fact, most of the people who work in the informal sector do not make income Enough money to be paying income tax. So while the owner himself may be evading on tax, you know, people who work there, I mean, they don't need to pay tax, but and they do pay tax, indirect tax, like we all do. So, so I think these are, you know, some points that people need to realize that nothing is all black, because, you know, ultimately, when black money is also spent, you know, the guy who earns it, at some level, does pay tax on it. I mean, it's it may not be a direct tax, but he's definitely paying an indirect
0: tax. No, and, and you brought up a very uh, interesting point uh, there in uh, passing, which I want to elaborate on very briefly, which is actually triggered by something I saw on Twitter today, which is a post by Kangana Ranaut, where she's talking about the alleged violence done by protesters and she's saying only 3% of us pay tax and the rest of the people are freeloaders. And the point is, no, you know, only a small percentage pays income tax. But every single person in this Country plays tax in some sort or the other. Every time you buy a little bit of salt or you buy a bar of soap, you are paying tax. We are all participants in this democracy and we all have a stake. Um, And also, there's an interesting point, you know, uh,
1: I mean, sub point to that point, uh, which is that, uh, you know, this 3 to 4 percent number uh, paying income tax is also extremely exaggerated because the bulk of individual income tax is paid by, I mean, I'd done a calculation some time back around. 0.26% 0.26% of India's population pays around 80% of its individual income tax. So, it's not even 3 or 4%. But having said that, everybody pays indirect tax. No, I mean, if if such a small proportion of uh, people pay income tax in the country, what it shows is, one, the general poverty of the country, and two, the fact that our income tax department has really not been uh, up to the mark. And a bad tax policies, which, you know, at some level over the years have led to a situation where people simply they feel the prefer need to dealing eliminate. in black rather than dealing with the yeah, uh, with the system. And so. dealing
0: in black being part of the informal uh, sector actually carries significant costs. So the very fact that people tend to do so should, you know, show you how onerous regulatory structures are that they feel the need to... Um, somehow kind of stay out of it you know like before we get to 2019 of course uh, just to sort of set the context I was chatting with a couple of my friends about uh, you know this episode that I'm talking to Vivek is there something you'd like me to discuss and one of them Devangshu Dutta said hey please ask him about how much the phrase he used I really liked it was a uh, force formalization how much the force formalization attempted by the government has contributed to this and forced formalization was of course uh, the one of the stated intents of uh, demonetization that bring the information formal into the formal sector, to which another of my friends, Mohit Satyanand, and both of these guys have been on my show before. uh, And uh, Mohit Satyanand said that uh, he wouldn't call it forced formalization as much as forced exits, because what demon forced many people to do was exit rather than formalize. Yeah,
1: so which is precisely the point I was making, you know, corporates, the big corporates were initially very happy, because they thought that, you know, the formalization will now happen and they'll benefit. But what has happened is that while the informal sector has been destroyed, that business hasn't moved to the formal sector simply because when the informal sector gets destroyed, you know, a lot of people lose their jobs. The purchasing power comes down. And once the purchasing power comes down, at some level, it does impact uh, consumption. And that Leads to a situation where corporates do not benefit from uh, you know forced formalisation, but as Mohit rightly put it, uh, it's more of uh, forced exits. So, which is what has happened in the last few
0: years. So basically, there's a procter and gamble which is making soap, which is making whatever it makes, and suddenly people are buying less of that because they are in the they have to. And there's least- data to back that up. So and- so
1: if if you look at so you know the uh, you look at uh, Hindustan Unilever, which is uh, you know a good uh, benchmark for anything. Uh, in the consumption economy in India, so if you look at the volume growth, which is basically the growth in the number of units they sell, and not the revenue, so that was uh, in 2018 the unit growth uh, was uh, 10 to 12 percent. This year it's come down to 5 percent. So that tells you that uh, the pace of FMCG growth has halved. So that is a that's a huge thing. So, so that should tell you that all this you know these theories of forced formalisation haven't really worked. So.
0: And my other question to you is that you are someone who watches the economy very closely right now we know that a lot of the numbers that the government puts out are extremely unreliable uh-huh. and uh, you know even with something like the gdp numbers even if you take the gdp numbers say at face value and i had a long episode with rajeshwari Sengupta on this where we discuss why they cannot be taken at face value but going deeper into the problems with gdp as a measure itself one of the things we agreed on and one of the things which was debated when the gdp was first mooted was should it include government spending in it or not right. and because, you know, it was a measure implemented just before the Second World right, War. Right. The decision that was taken, if I remember correctly, against the advice of Simon Kuznets, who in a sense was the father of the GDP, was that, uh, no, let's include government spending in it. But the problem with that is that if the GDP is being used as a measure of economic growth, that is an incentive for the government in power to spend more because all that spend gets counted. And it may be ineffective spending. It may even be destructive spending. Uh, You know, like you would actually, you know, the GDP would grow if you simply, um, you know, build bridges and blow them up and just reiterated that forever, the GDP would keep growing. And what has happened? And and, like, do you therefore feel a need to pass these numbers more closely? especially the GDP and say, Mm -hmm. okay, how much of this is just government spending and how much of this is society itself?
1: Okay, you know, so there are two answers to this question. One is, uh, you know, given the unreliability of uh, the GDP numbers since January 2015, when we moved on to a new method, a simple way to get around that is to look at a broad set of economic indicators. Now, while uh, those indicators may not give you this one number, to come to a conclusion like you know GDP does, it gives you a better feel of the way the overall economy is headed. So I'll substantiate this with an example. So sometime in late March, I think early April, not late March, I wrote this uh, piece for the Mint, wherein I said that India is getting into a consumption slowdown. Okay. And uh, so, when I said this, a lot of people didn't buy it, but then that's that's a different story for another day. But, you know, the way I caught it was simply because, you know, I looked at car sales, I looked at uh, scooter sales, motorcycle sales, moped sales, uh, tractor sales, and commercial vehicle sales. So, six kinds of uh, vehicle sales. Uh, for different sections of the society. So, car sales, a very urban phenomenon. Motorcycle sales, both rural and urban. Scooter sales, primarily more urban, more women. Moped, obviously, you know, for people who cannot buy bikes and uh, scooters. Tractor sales, rural rich. And commercial vehicle sales, basically, you know, a good indicator of whether investment is happening in the economy or not. So, all the six indicators had fallen. okay, And this hadn't happened in five years. I mean, I had data for five years. It may not have happened even beyond that. So what that told me was that there's something which is not right. Now, the GDP data would have never caught on to something like this. Right, So that's that's one part. So you have to obviously, you know, if you want to do serious economic analysis, you can't rely on just one indicator. You have to look at multiple indicators. You have to look at government indicators. You have to look at private indicators. You have to look at theoretical constructs like the GDP is, like the inflation is. And you also have to look at high frequency, you know, economic indicators like car sales and two-wheeler sales and so on. So that's one part of it. The second part is government spending. So one exercise which I always carry out, and that again has helped me quite a lot uh, in getting the you know the economic scene right, is see GDP has four constituents, right? Primarily, you have uh, consumption expenditure, which is the major part of the Indian economy, which uh, close to around fifty-eight, fifty-nine percent. Then you have investment, which is down to around twenty-eight percent. 28 29%, then you have government expenditure, which varies anywhere from 8 to 12%. Now it's like close to 13%, and you have net exports, which is exports minus imports and is negative in the Indian case. So, a good thing to do while analyzing GDP numbers is to just get rid of government expenditure. Okay, subtract that government expenditure from the overall GDP number and what you get is non-government GDP I mean you can call it private GDP you can call it whatever you want to but or actual GDP actual <laughs> GDP or or as Kuznets GDP because that's how yeah, he would he, have he, he, it. that's how he had imagined it uh, that's how he wanted it so so if you look at that number, that gives you a better indication. So like if, if you look at uh, the first six months of 2019-20, the GDP growth is 4.8% whereas the non-government GDP growth is 3.8%. Wow. So the difference point. is 100 basis points. And and that brings me to the, the, the point that I try making all the time, but nobody really seems to get it, is so, you know, whenever uh, an economy is in trouble and not just the Indian economy, economists want the government to spend more money. I mean, this is something that uh, comes from John Maynard Keynes. But what Keynes had said, and I mean, obviously, I mean, I call it the bastardization of uh, Keynes. Keynes had essentially called for savings during good time and then spending that money in bad time now obviously no government saves money they i mean all of them run a fiscal deficit so now if you look at data for the last 3 years the growth in the indian economy has been driven largely by government expenditure so the government expenditure in 1718 increased by around 15% and these are real gdp growth numbers not you know, adjusted for inflation. So, government uh, expenditure went up by 15% in 17-18, uh, around 9.3, 9.4% in eighteen nineteen, And in 1920, I think, uh, in the first six months, it's, it's grown by 12.7%. So, the point is, you know, it's not like, so the government is already spending a lot of money. And that has been driving the GDP growth number. I mean, as I said, if you take out uh, government expenditure from uh, the GDP, the growth this year is 100 basis points lower. Now, the question that no one seems to be asking is, and I also don't have a sort of a correct answer for this, is that where is this money going, right? Because if they're spending this money, it has to go somewhere. You'd want to see some of it come
0: back in the economy and create some kind of... So so
1: where, where is this money going? Now, I have a sort of a theory on it. And uh, so a lot of this money essentially is going towards buying rice and wheat, you know, which the Food Corporation of India buys and uh, distributes through the public distribution system. But if you look at FCI data, you will realize that the organization stores much more uh, rice and wheat than is required so in that way we're basically buying rice and wheat from large farmers giving them that money and then that rice and wheat is essentially rotting uh, in the go-downs of FCA. because the purpose
0: of buying them was not to feed people but to just to buy that money just to buy that
1: now imagine that you know, so a few years back I had done this calculation and I'm not sure whether if the number is still that but the broader theory is still right and I'd found that around uh, the excess stocks with uh, Food Corporation of India 80,000 crore rupees worth of excess rice and wheat were lying in the go-downs of FCI. I mean, this is when you had accounted for uh, the strategic reserve as well that every nation needs to maintain. So, now imagine that 80,000 crore rupees going somewhere else and, you know, let's say it it just goes towards building a four-lane
0: highway. Or it's raised in the pockets of uh, customers who it was. Uh, Whatever, or from. I mean, I mean, I'm even okay with if the folio highway. <laughs> you know, in this recent speech that you made uh, in Bangalore, hmm. uh, you gave an illustration of how high the opportunity cost of uh, this sort of money can be, yeah. and you use folio highways in your. Uh, yeah, so that
1: folio highway example was from uh, Vijay Kelkar and uh, Ajay Shah's book. Uh, the, the new book uh, which In, is service the In Service of IA the Republic I
0: recorded with them last week but that episode will be coming out after this one that will release on Jan 6th incredible book it's a masterpiece and great episode Yeah, and you should read it
1: so anyway so the Mr. Kelkar and Mr. Shah point out that it costs rupees 1 lakh crore to build a 10,000 kilometer four lane highway okay now so with around 80,000 crore of excess rice and wheat with FCI you've basically lost out on around 8,000 kilometers of Uh, Of a four lane highway. Now, the example I used in the speech was uh, slightly different. I mean, I had compared uh, four lane highways with the amount, the total amount of money that the government has been uh, spending in order to recapitalize uh, public sector banks and to keep them going in the last few years. So, between 17, 18, 18, 19, and 1920, the government would have ended up spending close to uh 2,70,000 crores to keep these banks going. So, which basically means 27,000 kilometers of uh, four-lane
0: highways. Which has massive, what economists would call massive positive externalities on the economy because you, exactly. you
1: know. No, I mean, this does not mean that you let go of, of all public sector banks and allow them to go bust. But at the same time, there is no need for the government to be, you know, running banks like... Dina Bank and Indian Overseas Bank and United Bank Uh, you know, I mean, uh, some
0: of these banks have now been merged away. No, and in fact, you know, like when we think of government spending, I'd like people to think along two lines. One is, beyond the obvious point, one is just a simple moral cost of government money itself. Every rupee that the government has is coerced from someone that carries a moral cost, the person it is coerced from, which is some taxpayer who is buying a bar of soap or salt or whatever. That taxpayer could have found an alternative use for it, which would have contributed to their welfare. And surely wish they would know uh, more about the new that's that's one let me just Hmm. take this forward so where is this money to recapitalize
1: government banks coming from it's been coming from the uh, excess excise duty that uh, we pay on petrol and diesel okay so in that way every petrol and diesel buyer in India direct or indirect I mean indirectly we all buy petrol and diesel right even though we may not have vehicles, but let's say we go to buy, uh, you know, vegetables somewhere. So that cost of transport is built into the price of that vegetable, right? So indirectly, all of us are essentially uh, paying a sort of a premium uh, every time, you know, we buy anything to bail out the public sector banks in India. Now, so there's another angle to it. Now, the angle is... uh, India produces very little of the oil that it consumes. Okay, we import close to 85% of the oil now. And at the same time, you know, our exports have sort of fallen over the years. So, one of the things that people regularly talk about, and especially when it comes to, uh, you know, low-value exports, in order to get them going, you need to let the rupee depreciate. The problem with letting the rupee depreciate is the moment you let the rupee depreciate, your petrol and diesel prices start to go up, okay? Now, one way of ensuring that the petrol and diesel prices wouldn't go up is by cutting down the excise duty on it. But the moment you cut excise duty on it, how do you finance the recapitalization of public sector banks? So, the moral of the story is that, I mean, the direct effects in economics are very, very obvious. But it's the indirect effects
0: which actually uh, hurt the economy more. In fact, I would say that there's no moral in the story. There's an immoral in the story to continue with sort of the two part point I was making very quickly about uh, government spending is one, of course, that all government spending carries a moral cost because of the coercive uh, effect of acquiring that money, which is why whatever you which doesn't mean that government should not exist, we need it. But before we needed to protect our rights to begin with, but before you recommend any kind of government spending on anything, you have to firstly justify that moral cost. Now, assuming that you do that, the next step that then comes is you have to think about the opportunity. Cost of that spending. Now, like you just gave a great example of it, Vivek, when you spoke about how the eight thousand kilometers of uh, four lane national highway. But essentially, the opportunity cost can be anything. If the money just stayed with the people it was coerced from in the name of taxes, they would spend it in their own lives. It would be their consumption. That is also a cost. There is also a crowding out effect of such money, and, and various kind of indirect effects, as you know, of which um, you know, you just give one excellent uh, sort of. Um, Example. So, you know, like you just said, in March you wrote this piece about how there's a consumption crisis and nobody believed you. In August, I recorded an episode with our friend Mohit Satyanand on, I mean, the episode was called Two Economic Crisis 2008 and 2019. And at that point, people were still in denial that we are in a crisis. People still all. are in a denial. To some extent, but I think there's a slightly greater awareness that higher crisis to hai. Haan, but now but, the
1: spin is that uh, it's not a structural thing and, you know, it's a, a cyclical, cyclical thing. And Global me ho hai, ho hai. Is there something to that? I mean, there'll always be something to that. But, you know, it's not just because of uh, that. I mean, so there's a very long answer to this question. And I think there are two answers. So the first part uh, where the global excuse has been used over and over again is essentially when it comes to our exports. And, uh, you know, when it comes to our exports, the uh, exports uh, of uh, India have sort of fallen from around... uh, 25% 25% of uh, the GDP in 2011-12 to around 19.7% in 2018-19. Now, uh, you know, as I keep saying over and over again, uh, you know, no country in the history of economic development has gone from being a developing country to becoming a developed country uh, without a successful export sector, Okay. Uh, I mean, maybe India has some new model brewing, but at least it's not happened up until now. And also, I mean, if you look at our uh, two previous uh, growth spurts between 92, 97 and 2003 and 2011, that was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say largely driven by the export sector, but the export sector played a very important uh, role in it. Also, the export sector tends to create a lot of uh, jobs for uh, what we call the MSMEs, uh, you know, uh, micro, small and uh, medium enterprises, which have traditionally provided around 35 40% of uh, goods exports. So it's very, so you know, so it creates a lot of economic growth. Also within uh, the export sector, sectors like uh, textile. Okay, so textile is a very important sector because it creates jobs for women, and especially given the fact that our female labor force participation rate has fallen dramatically over the years, where which basically means that. Lesser and lesser women who are a part of the workforce are actually going out and uh, working. Now, the excuse that has been offered in case of the export sector is that no, boss, uh, it's a global phenomenon and blah, blah, blah. But that's not true. So, I mean, so recently, Dr. Shankar Acharya, who, you know, is a senior economist and a former chief economic advisor, he wrote in a column, uh, in the business standard and I quote, uh, so between 2011 and 2018, India's goods exports increased by only 8%. Okay, In sharp contrast, Vietnam's exports grew by 154%, Cambodia's by 114%, Myanmar's by 82%, Bangladesh's by 61%, the Philippines by 40% and even China on such a large base by 31%. So obviously, what this tells you is that our export sector has been unable to compete internationally, and uh, that's the long and 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 the short of it. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, this global slowdown has some sort of a impact, but largely our exports have slowed down because we are unable to compete internationally, and. Uh, you know i mean to compete internationally i mean and this is very very obvious and cliched and has been said over and over again reforms are required on the land labor capital and tax front
0: which which many uh, hoped in 2014 that Modi would finally do, but uh, he hasn't. No, no, so, except for so. you know
1: reducing corporate income tax rates. Mm. Now, even you know for competing within the country, uh, the entrepreneurs need to pay a fair price for electricity and freight. Now, the cost of cheap electricity right now in India for farmers is borne by the industry. Uh, along similar lines, railway passengers are subsidised at the cost of freight. The taxes on aviation fuel have ensured that air cargo rates in India are one of the highest in the world. So, I mean, so these are fundamental anomalies which uh, need to be set right. And they cannot be set right overnight. And on top of this, we have a GST services tax system, which is in a mess. Now, in fact, Kelkar and Shah have a very interesting uh, point in, in the book where they say that, Uh, 80% of countries which introduced the GST after 1995 have opted for a single rate GST. And this is a fundamental point which our lawmakers uh, do not seem to get. I mean, you know, we are still stuck in sin goods and it's not, you know, it's, it's about the overall simplicity of the system. So I can understand two rates. But the current, uh, you know, paraphernalia is, in fact, now we have a funny situation wherein the GST on inputs, a lot of inputs is greater than the GST on the final consumption good. So because of that, a lot of companies are getting refunds. And so it it tells you this is the problem of launching a system, uh, you know, and wanting to give a bhashan at midnight and claiming that it's a big victory without really uh, planning for it properly.
0: And unless and, and someone say that, oh, this is in hindsight that we know the problems people have been working not on. Really. It. The not truth really. is exactly. So the truth is that uh, out of the many episodes I have done on GST on the seen and the unseen, the first one was before GST was implemented with our good friend Devangshu Datta, and Devangshu identified exactly the problems that have eventually turned out to be problems. Everything was foreseen, not just by Devangshu and me, but by all good economists. But this government, of course, does not value expertise as we have Uh, found out again and again moving on from this you know another uh, sort of um, very interesting point that uh, uh, you made in your speech and that harks back to a book that both of us have been reading and talking about narrative economics by um, uh, Schiller is about how the mentality of consumers can lead to vicious cycles in the economy which just keep it going more and more further down. And you've used a historical analogy of this with the Great Depression of 1929. Right. Can, you, can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Before I talk about narrative economics, I think Robert Schiller
1: is this one economist who gets these broad predictions right. I mean, very few economists get, you know, as the old joke goes that economists predicted nine out of the last five recessions. So Schiller got the 2000 uh, stock market bubble right, and he even got the real estate bubble of 2008. Right. So in narrative economics, he basically the sort of the core point of the book is that how the narratives that human beings create uh, in their heads and in, in their lives essentially end up impacting the overall economy. So the example he gives is, is that of the Great Depression of 1929. And I'll quote him. He says that in the four years after 1929, GDP person, which is per capita income, went down by a catastrophic 20%. It's not called the Great Depression for nothing. But at the same time, the sales of new cars uh, of uh, by the Ford Motor Company fell by 86%. So per capita income went down by 20%, but car sales went down by 86%. So obviously, there was a disproportionate impact on car sales. Now, the question is, why did that happen? Now, now, you know, during the Great Depression, close to 25% of the American labor force lost its jobs. They became unemployed. The absolute number was around 13 million. Now, what happened was, what this told you was that everyone knew someone else, you know, someone in the family, some close friend or a relative who had lost a job. So this created uh, what we can call the psychology of the slowdown, right? So the bigger problem during the Great Depression was not, I mean, obviously, you know, people who lost their jobs had a problem, but the bigger problem in the minds of people was the fear of losing a job and not being able to find another one, okay? Because everyone knew someone who had lost a job and you know was uh, just sitting at home. Doing nothing. And this started to influence their consumption decisions. So, like Schiller writes, and I quote him some people postpone buying a car or other major consumer items. And uh, which led to a loss of jobs in the auto and consumer products industries, which led to more people postponement, which led to a second round of job losses and so on for several years. Now, uh, so it essentially, you know, the psychology of the slowdown had set, gotten into the minds of people and that created a bigger problem over the years. So what happens is a lot of people talk about this in a very, uh, you know, sort of a nondescript manner where they say, oh, it's all in the mind. I mean, boss, when it gets into the mind, it becomes a bigger problem than the actual problem.
0: And also the thing to note here is that it's not that they were worried about nothing. It's not like a tulip bubble or something like that. Uh, They had reason to be worried. The economy was doing badly. But these are sort of the ripple effects of that worry where they decide that, okay, things are going bad. My uh, cousin is out of a job. God knows how long this will go on. I had better chill out a little bit and, uh, you know, cut back on the lifestyle. And and that creates a vicious cycle. Yeah, and so what it.
1: that does is, you know, when the consumer confidence goes down, the business confidence also falls very, very quickly. So it's like, you know, like Mr. Modi recently made a speech, I think, at the 100 years of Asocham. Uh, Uh, which is a business lobby, and uh, ask the industry to invest. Now, the the problem is, you know, uh, I mean, you can ask the industry to (laughs) invest, but the industry is not there to, you know, for social service, right? So, the industry will invest when people will consume. Because when they put money into something, they're looking for a certain rate of return, which is higher than their cost of capital. I mean, the capital may be equity, it may be debt. And uh, in a scenario where the consumers are not interested in consumption in the same way as they were in the past, expecting uh, industry to invest is problematic. I mean, there is a problem with that argument. I mean, as a government, you can only uh, sort of uh, set a you know, series of reforms in place uh, and encourage the industry to invest. Now, whether the industry invests or not is, you know, depends on the industry. I mean, the government cannot do much about it. So, anyway, so so once the consumer confidence goes down, the business confidence also goes down very, very quickly. And when the business confidence goes down, you know, tax collection becomes a problem, which is exactly how things are playing out in India. I mean, if you look at uh, the, I mean, I have data for uh, the first seven months I remember the tax collection, the gross tax revenue of the government has gone up by around 1.5, 1.6 percent, whereas in the budget, it is assumed to go up by 18 percent. So that tells you, uh, I mean, if there is one data point that you need to look at uh, to sort of convince yourself that there is an economic slowdown, This is it because this is government data and it is a high frequency economic indicator published every month. It's not a theoretical construct like the GDP is. So, in this scenario, and obviously, you know, all of these points are understood by the politicians of the day. Now, in 1925, nine, what happened was that the American president, uh, Calvin Coolidge, uh, tried to talk up the economy by, you know, saying things like all is well and, you know, the stock market is doing well and stuff like that. So, you know, you had public officials, businessmen, journalists all trying to talk up uh, the economy. And so there is this, uh, again, there's this uh, something that uh, Schiller writes uh, in his book. And he says that this led one observer to quip because everyone was being so positive about the entire thing. Unfortunately, there appears a strong tendency among writers on business subjects to put out nothing but optimistic statements and to avoid all discussion that might be construed as pessimism. I mean, I can vouch uh, for a fact that, you know, one of the leading uh, business dailies in the country or rather the leading business daily in the country operates exactly like this. So their feeling is that if we keep saying all is well, ultimately, all will become well. Okay, So because they believe they are so influential. So now if you sort of look at it uh, you know if you compare this to what has been happening in india uh, the situation is is slightly similar wherein obviously we are not in a depression we are, technically we are not even in a recession recession is when the economy contracts for two consecutive quarters so we are growing at a slower rate than we were in the past. So, we are a part of a slowdown. Or what uh, where former RBI Governor Aguram Rajan called a growth recession. So, the moment he called it a growth recession, you know, a few smart people on Twitter uh, commented, how can the words growth and recession be used one after the other? Obviously, they do not understand that You know, economists have terms for various situation. This is a jargon which Rajan was using. And growth recession is essentially a situation where economic growth is slow, uh, but the economy isn't contracting to be called
0: a technical recession. So, basically, your growth is in recession in the sense what was growing at yeah. 7% that became recent. 5, became 3. That's in the growth yeah. rate is in recession. And at the same time, the unemployment is going up.
1: Right? Yeah. So, uh Anyway, so, uh, so we are, we are in a growth, you can call it a growth recession. I think, uh, uh, Arvind Subramanyam has called it a growth slowdown or something like that. You know, we can keep arguing on the name, but that's not important. Now, you know, even in India, you know, our, our ministers, our policy makers, government, journalists, television channels have all tried to talk up uh, the economy now i think my uh, the, the statement which obviously became uh, most famous was the one that uh, nirmala sitaraman wherein she said uh, the finance minister she said that uh, you know car sales have fallen because millennials are buying uber and ola i think uh, for a finance minister of a country as big as india is to make such a juvenile statement was sad And this is like, you know, the government has access to, you know, so many uh, people in the Indian Economic Service. It has access to so many think tanks. If such a statement was to be made, you know, there had to be some research evidence backing it up. Okay. Uh, Also, uh, it's like, you know, millennials have been around. The poor guys keep getting blamed for everything, but they have been around for a while now, right? And so have Uber and Ola. So it's not like millennials were not there in 2014, 15, 16, 17 and 18. And Uber and Ola was also there. So why was it that millennials stopped buying uh, cars? because of Uber and Ola only in 2019, right? I mean, so there are you
0: know basic uh, logical holes in what uh, the minister said. In fact, as a tangent, you know, uh, Vivek, I think we have to confess that even people in our uh, 40s like we are have kind of given millennials too much of a bad rap. As, oh, we are, sure. as we are finding out over the last few days with these spirited protests across the country being led by millennials fighting for our idea of India. Uh, you know, th- yeah, there's yeah. actually a lot more reason to have hope from this generation than there is No, respect. I mean
1: so I I always I've always said this that the next generation is smarter. And I mean, given that I keep talking to students all the while I think uh, there is nothing wrong with them. I mean, this is. I mean, they may have a different attitude towards. They are smarter because
0: they invite you to gift. No, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) so it's not. It's not that.
1: So I mean, so you can see, you can make out the smartness of a group by the kind of questions they ask you, right? Right. And so everywhere I go, and I I mean, I talk to uh, millennials. uh, I think there's nothing. I mean, wrong with them. I mean, they may have a different approach to life. They may have a different approach to learning. Like one of the beautiful things that I I sort of. uh, learned at uh, the IM in Vishakapatnam recently, where I had gone to talk, where the professor just said he's Vivek call, And he said, I won't introduce you because these guys have already Googled you and they've seen your YouTube videos. And, and I was like, yeah, I mean, this is how this generation operates. And otherwise, what would have happened is, in you know, in any other scenario, he would have introduced me for five, seven minutes and then I would have had to crack a joke and, and we would have lost the first 10 minutes of the class. Here, within the first minute, I was talking what I had gone there for. So, they had done their uh, homework. It was just done in a different way, wherein, you know, in our generation, would have probably dug up, read a book or whatever. These guys are, you know, they have their ways. Uh, so, uh, so, so, getting back to what we were talking about, so, other than Nirvana Sita Raman, the other, you know, the, the statement that was made was by... Uh, Ravi Shankar Pasad. And he said that on 2nd October, people spend 120 crores watching three movies, uh, Joker, uh, War and uh, Saira Narasimha Reddy, uh, Chiranjeevi's big release. And uh, he said, so where is the slowdown? Okay. Now, you know, in, in a country like India, whipping up a big number is never really a, you know, it's not it's not a problem at all. Uh, but you also have to see where that big number fits into the overall scheme of things. So, if you look at uh, the projected GDP of India during for 2019-20, I mean, this is the GDP which is a, on which all the calculations have happened in the budget, which was presented in February, last, February this year, not last year. We are not yet into 2020. Uh, so, the GDP forecast is around 211 lakh crore, Okay. Uh, private consumption is around 58-59% of the GDP. So, at 59%, I think it works out to around uh, 125 lakh crore. Okay. So, if you divide that 125 lakh crore by 365 days, the, so the average consumption expenditure on a, any given day in India is around 34,250 crore which obviously will be a little higher on a day like October 2nd because it's a holiday, long weekend, and people go out and spend on these opportunities. So now imagine 120 crore as a part of uh, 34,250 crore, which Indians anyway spend on a given day. So the the percentage is around 0.35%. So, you know, you have to uh, look at the broader context before you go out and say things. And the funny part was he later said that I have withdrawn my statement. Now, how do you, this is something I've never understood. How do you withdraw something you have already said? You can either say, I stand by my statement Mm -hmm. or you can say I was wrong. How do you withdraw it? As if reality changes suddenly. You've never said it
0: to begin with if yeah. you withdraw it. I mean,
1: it. I can, you know, I can understand once you've said it and you realize it's okay. I mean, we all say things which we regret. I mean, all that, what that requires is all you have to say I was wrong. That's it. I mean, how do you withdraw that? You can't withdraw that, right? So, uh, And so so then, you know, so there are these points which keep getting made wherein someone picks up a part of the whole and then throws that number at you and then asks you this question, where is the slowdown? So the other example that I I love giving is uh, on cars. And there are these uh, two cars, car companies, uh, I should say, which are doing very well this year. One is the Korean company uh, Kia Motors. And then I think the other is MG Hector. So, these cars companies have sold a few thousand cars, and you know, every time you say there is a slowdown, they say, "But what about
0: Kia Motors, Kia
1: Motors?" and so, so I did a very rough calculation, and uh, so I, i'll I'll sort of read out these numbers. Kia Motors has sold forty thousand eight hundred forty five units this year. by this year, I mean April to November. m j Hector has sold eleven thousand four hundred one units. This is between April and November in total. lakh cars have been sold this year. So, Kia Motors and MJ Hector form only 4.5% of the total cars sold. The total car sales during the same period in 2018 stood at 15.35 lakh. So, from 15.35 lakh, we have fallen to 11.49 lakh, which is a drop of 25%. Right. So, so, clearly, there is a, you know, I mean, you can always take one data point and... You can
0: cherry pick anything. Yeah.
1: Then. And see, it's like the example I, I give these days is, let's say India grows at 10%. I mean, let's say, I'm assuming here. Now, obviously, there will be parts of India, like, let's say, uh, Karnataka. Karnataka may grow at 15%. But Bihar might go at 4%. So, that does not mean that There is
0: no problem in just because India and Karnataka are growing
1: at a higher rate does not mean there's
0: no problem in Bihar, right? And in this case, just because a small part of the whole is doing well, doesn't mean the whole is doing well, right? So this is like the other way around.
1: So yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of these things which are sort of, you know, where people throw numbers at us uh, without, uh, you know, really uh giving us the context. But you know,
0: the interesting thing here is that their target audience doesn't want the context. Of course. They want the impressive yeah, yeah, number yeah, yeah. they are uh, learning through WhatsApp University. They want the impressive number w- by which they can feel that they have a good argument to defend whatever side of the argument they're on. Uh, you know, this is not a failing, um, restricted to one wing or the other. And big numbers, like you said, uh, sort of sound good. You know, speaking of big numbers, uh, you know, another sort of, uh, big number I came across recently was when I was on our favorite uh, app tiktok uh, am i correct in saying it is our favorite app? Yeah, yeah of course i love tiktok yeah so tiktok so i was on tiktok and i had of course introduced our good friend Mohit satyanand and his wife premi to tiktok so i saw a statistic i thought would interest him which was that there were literally hundreds of videos on onions which were parodying the oh, government oh, i mean oh, tiktok was a center of dissent in india and the total number of uh, views for these videos was some 360 million. So I instantly took a screenshot and I sent it to Mohit and Mohit was amazed. He was like, oh my God, this means like one view for every one in every four Indians. And this is mind blowing and this is amazing. And then I scroll down and there is another hashtag, some backbenchers hashtag or whatever, which had 6.4 billion views. I don't know how that is even possible given our uh, population. So that's that's the whole thing. So if you you go on to YouTube now, hmm. Uh, you'll
1: realize that a lot of uh, songs in different Indian languages, not Hindi, mm. okay, have huge number of hits. So, there are Punjabi songs. I think there's one Punjabi song, which I don't recall the name right now, which has close to a billion uh Wow, which, yes. I mean, obviously, a lot of people watch uh, them again and again No, and again. I think what is also happening here is that because YouTube pays you, you know, the, the business model is such that the more hits you have, uh-huh. the more money so they, you So, they'll, they'll have these I'm sure type. there are bots or something which are going around. But there was this controversy also recently with Bacha and YouTube, wherein YouTube, I think, refused to uh, pay him because, uh, I don't know, I mean, he, they probably thought that they're bots which are driving up.
0: No, the thing is, they have software to detect bots, but there was this interesting viral video, which uh, you know, was uh, doing the rounds a few months ago. We showed this Chinese uh, sort of clicking factory, link clicking factory, where they just had, you know, tens, if not hundreds of phones just lined up on the wall, and a guy going from one to the other, just clicking like on each of them, like physically. So it's not a bot doing it. So even if you have some bot detection software, this is a guy physically, he is cumbersome, but you know, the Chinese will do anything. And hey, guess what? The Indians won't even though we have cheaper labor, that's, you know. (laughs) It's a business model we should be getting into. But where is our informal uh, sector anymore? Let's now uh, take a quick commercial break and we'll come back shortly to actually talk about 2019. One of the great joys of doing the seen and the unseen Is that it forces me to read a lot more than I used to I was a voracious reader as a kid But once I entered adulthood, I lost that habit And it's an incredibly important habit The more we read, the better we understand the world and the people around us We make sense of the world through stories By connecting dots And the more dots we have, the clearer our vision Reading gives us those thoughts. I've been working hard on my reading habit and now I invite you to join me. My new podcast, The Book Club by Amit Verma, begins in early January exclusively on Storytel. This is a weekly show that I'll run for a year. Every week on The Book Club, I will recommend one book that I enjoy reading and I will speak about what it brought to me and why you should read it. You can use my show to take random recommendations yourself or you can start a reading club of your own using my show as a starting point. I'll discuss all genres of fiction and non-fiction and hopefully together we can understand the world a little bit better. Coming soon, The Book Club by Amit Verma, only on Storytel. Welcome back to The Scene and The Unseen. I'm chatting with my good friend uh, Vivek called the Shah Rukh Khan of economics, uh, the doomsayer of Twitter, uh, yeah, yeah. about, you know, <laughs> economics in India in 2019. And, you know one of the things I learnt as a cricket journalist because I started at Wisden and then Cricket and so on is that look everybody is watching the match and the basic commodity of the information the news what has happened people know so when you're writing about the match the next day for example you should have a lot of analysis and go deeper and have more colour and all that because the bare facts everybody knows but the thing is you know with the economy I'm not sure if we even know the bare facts because it is such a complex subject and there is so much rhetoric around so I'm actually going to ask you for the bare facts. How did our economy actually do in 2019? How does one sum it up? What is your match report? I think this has been the worst
1: uh, year in many years. Uh, I think by far the worst year uh, since I would say 2004, 2005 or even before that. So basically, you know, what has happened is that uh, I mean, as, as, as I've said before, the private consumption expenditure is by far the biggest part of the Indian economy, and it constitutes around 58-59%, and the growth in private consumption expenditure uh, peaked way back in 2011-12, okay, you know, at 17.5%, and after that, the private consumption expenditure growth has largely seen a downward trend. But it has always uh, managed to grow in double digits. And this has basically ensured that India has continued to
0: grow. And by private consumption, just to clarify, what you mean is people like you and me spending money. spending something, I mean. Movie, popcorn, picture, car, whatever. Jo correct. correct. This is all private consumption.
1: Now, in 2019-20, uh, for the first time uh, since 2004-05 the private consumption growth has fallen into single digits and it's been around close to 7% i mean nominal 7 not adjusted for inflation so the question is why has this happened okay the answer for this lies in the fact that our household savings and our net household financial savings have been falling uh, in the last few years now what do i mean by this the net household financial savings are essentially you know fixed deposits insurance mutual funds small savings etc minus the liabilities that people have uh, sort of uh, accumulated over the years so the household financial savings uh, peaked between 2008-9 and 2010-11 when they were greater than 10% of uh, the national disposable income in each of the three years okay after that they have been falling and in 1718 they reached a low of uh, 6.5% And this has primarily happened because financial liabilities of people have been growing, which basically means people have been borrowing more. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that the consumption growth since it's peaked in 11-12 has been financed more and more by people borrowing more. Okay, so the borrowings have essentially continued to finance our consumption in the last seven, eight years. And uh, that story is now unraveling.
0: Now, other than uh, looking at the... By borrowing, do you, a uh, newbie question, Do you include things like credit card? Bill, anything, you know,
1: personal that. loans, uh, so on. I mean, NBFC loans. and Now, if you look at overall household savings, they have also been falling over the years. Now, what that tells you is that other than borrowing, a greater proportion of the income is being spent towards consumption. So, which again explains why people are saving... Uh, Less and uh, using that money to consume more. Okay. Now, the question again is uh, why are uh, savings falling? Okay, And the answer for that lies in the fact that our income growth has also slowed down in the last few years. In fact, the per capita uh, income growth peaked way back in 2010-11 at 16.9%. And I think since 2014-15 the growth rate of income is has been in single digits, okay? And if you look at the income tax data, it tells you that uh, between assessment year 1213 and assessment year 1819, salaried income has grown at just 4.5% per year. So, what that tells you is that if you adjust for inflation, the salaried income has actually gone come, down. Come down. Uh, rural wages for men, you know, sort of grew at 28% in 13 14 since then, they have grown in single digits, uh, with the growth in 1819 falling to just 3.8%. Wow.
0: And this is again nominal terms. So this is all you nominal. It's taken in inflation, it's ah. gone down. Nominal. And it's all
1: nominal. Uh, the same is true for the rural wages for women. So basically, because the income growth has slowed down, people have, uh, used a greater proportion of their income to consume, uh, because of which their savings have come down and they have also, uh, borrowed to consume more. Right. So, all this was essentially financing Indian consumption since the consumption growth peaked in 11-12. And do these falling savings then have an impact down the line on investments? No. So, which is what I mean, I was coming to. So, so basically, now now the question is, uh, why has the income not been growing? Okay. the income has not been growing primarily because if you look at the investment to GDP ratio, uh, that also has been falling over the years. So the investment to GDP ratio peaked in two thousand seven eight at thirty five point eight percent, and in the last few years it's it's varied between twenty eight and twenty nine percent. Now, to just to give you a few data points which essentially show you how bad the situation is. In 2010-11, the new investment projects announced were worth 25.7 lakh crore. In 1819, this was down to 12.1 lakh crore or 46% of the uh, earlier number. During the first six months of 1920, new investment projects worth just 2.04 lakh crore have been announced. So this tells you how bad the situation is on the investment front. Now this is a scarier number because announcements are okay. I mean, people announce all kinds of things. When it comes to investment projects drop, the situation appears to be even more grim. In 1011, the investment projects worth 4.04 lakh crore had been dropped. This jumped to 20.74 lakh crore in 1819. During the first six months of 1920, projects worth rupees 7.9 lakh crore have already been dropped. So basically what has happened is that investments haven't uh, sort of uh, grown at the rate they were expected to, because of which uh, there has been an impact on income growth, because of which there has been, uh, you know, people have consumed a greater part of their income and they've also uh, consumed by borrowing more. And because of which our consumption growth uh, sort of, you know, which should have uh, slowed down dramatically earlier, did not slow down. And all this is now sort of coming together. Now the problem is, you might ask, that you know, why are you saying this now and not in 2018? The problem is that a lot of data in India is not available quickly enough. So if you look at the financial savings data numbers that I've, I'm uh, offering now, were not available back then. So the numbers were available only as of 15, 16, and then 16, 17, and the trend was not very obvious. But once the 1718 data came in, the trend became very, very uh, obvious. So, basically, you know, as uh, our current uh, chief economic advisor keeps saying, investment ultimately finances uh, consumption. Consumption can only finance consumption up to a certain extent because it is investment which creates economic activity. In
0: fact, that's a central point of the episode I did with Mm. Mohit and in August, which will be linked from the show. So,
1: one example I, I sort of, so in every city I speak, I mean, at least the bigger cities, I give the example of that city. So, I was recently in Bangalore and the example I gave in Bangalore was of the IT industry in Bangalore, right? Now, when the first set of companies came in and they said, okay, let's establish something in Bangalore. So, Bangalore was a sleepy pensioner's town three decades back and now it's, you know, it's a global IT hub. So, when the first set of companies came in and they established, uh, you know, their code writing center or whatever, uh, they hired people. Now, those people who were hired, had to then go look for housing. Okay, right. And once they sort of, you know, rented their homes or whatever, they had to furnish that home, right. Then they had to hire cooks, so on and so forth, maids. And that's how the, uh, you know, economic activity... Uh, sort of created
0: other economic activities. Because the cooks will get a place to stay, exactly. they'll have some yes, kind of yes. furniture, they so, will travel around.
1: So, so, so if, you, if you look at, so you know many years back, I was at the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad and one researcher offered this very interesting data point and he said, every formal job in Bangalore creates six informal jobs around it. Okay. And, you know, to the extent, I mean, look at the real estate boom in that city. I mean, it would have never happened right i mean and when a real estate boom happens the kind of employment that is created uh, especially for uh, you know people who do not have uh, specialized skills is mind boggling right so a similar thing has happened in uh, in hyderabad a similar thing has happened uh, in pune where economic activity has feeded on economic activity, which is already happening. And at the heart of it is, I mean, you can call it investment, you can call it anything. Basically, someone needs to start a business and employ people to run that business. So, unless that happens... uh, it's very difficult for consumption to continue uh, to be robust. And it is very difficult without consumption. If consumption is not robust, the, economy cannot continue to grow at the same pace.
0: And the thing to notice is that starting a business is not a blind shot in the dark, someone deciding to do something for society by starting a business. There are incentives in play. He has a sense of the market, how much money people are willing to play. What you've just described is a virtuous cycle that you have investment happening. It creates jobs and opportunities for many people who all consume and that consumption then uh, makes industry prosper and they spend more and then therefore people have more to consume and it's a virtuous cycle. What we are in now, as you also described eloquently before, this is a vicious cycle where people are consuming less and less and therefore industry is doing worse and worse and they are spending less and less. So people are consuming less and less because they have less and less money. Now, the thing is, how did we get from that virtuous cycle to a vicious cycle and what can be done to like, how does one get back out of this? What are the typical sort of things that you'd look at doing? I mean, I understand part of the uh, hmm. problem is just diagnosing the situation properly, which um, uh, hasn't really happened to uh, uh, that extent, and uh, you know, even within that, there are so many fumblings. But how does one move from one I think, kind of cycle uh, I'll other? answer
1: that. I think before that, the other thing I wanted to sort of elaborate on was uh, India's demographic dividend. Okay. I think it's very, very important to talk about this. Uh, so, uh, you know, the first time I sort of encountered this term was uh, sometime in 2006, 2007, when uh, so I used to be a journalist covering personal finance uh, for uh, this newspaper called Daily News and Analysis which shut down some time back. And I used to have to cover these new mutual fund, uh, equity mutual fund schemes being launched. Now, obviously, there was no difference between ones, you know, all the schemes were the same. You know, they, they, they'd probably go and buy stocks and make money for the investors, hope to at least. So all these press conferences used to have a presentation made by a fund manager. And all the fund managers used to have what I started calling the IDD slide. Uh, which is basically in india's demographic dividend now demographic dividend uh is essentially a period of few decades uh in the you know in the life cycle of a country where uh, the workforce uh, increases at a faster rate than the overall population and this happens primarily because the infant mortality rate over the years which is basically the number of uh Uh, Babies who die before uh, the age of one uh, comes down dramatically. Now, as these people enter the workforce and find jobs and, you know, make money and spend that money, uh, the economy grows at a faster pace because of that millions of people get pulled out of poverty. And it's happened in all the countries uh, which have gone from being developing to becoming developed countries have had, you know, demographic dividend play a role in it. Uh, now in India's case, we were told back in 2006 seven that a million uh, Indians were entering the workforce every month, okay which is around 1.2 crore a year. And this is when our female labor participation rate is low. You know if a majority of the women start entering the workforce, this number could go up to at least two million a month. not two million a month, but around 1.8 1.9 million a month easily. So, uh, now, so obviously, you know, there had to be, you know, uh, jobs had to be created for these people. But given the fact that, uh, you know, investment isn't really happening, uh, the kind of jobs that had to be created for these people haven't been created. And because of that, you know, now you have all this unemployment data coming out, which is very, very, uh, scary. So, you know, you had the National Sample Surveys uh, offices. Uh, periodic labor force survey and according to which the rate of unemployment among 15 to 29 year olds was at 17.4% in 1718 uh, having jumped from 5% in 1112 now uh, the center for monitoring indian economy puts out uh, uh, more recent data and they say that the rate of unemployment in january 2017 Among 15 to 29-year-olds, 20 to 24-year-olds and 25 to 29-year-olds was 27.3%, 21.6% and 8.7%. In November 2019, the rate was at 40.9%, 39.2% and 10%. So there has been a huge jump. At the same time, the labor force participation rate has fallen. So what that basically means is that a lot of people who could not find jobs have opted out of the labor force. And even then the rate of unemployment has gone up i think uh, dr ratin roy uh, who uh, is the boss man at nipfp if i remember correctly made a very interesting point in a recent interview and i think this all of us should have uh, this data point uh, in our heads and this is coming from dr roy i mean who's you know as nonpartisan partisan as one can get uh, not from Dr. Debreu, so, mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> I mean, we need to differentiate between our Roy's and our Debreu, So, yeah, Between the economists
0: who still have some integrity and those who don't, so, if I may put it plainly.
1: The number of young Indians without jobs, but also not looking for jobs. And additionally, not in any institute for training or education has almost tripled in the last 10 years. It was estimated to be at 3, 3 3.5 crore a decade ago. It's now believed to be 10 crore or more. So if you remove the retired and those too young to work, this 10 crore constitutes a very sizable section of the population of our workforce. Now, you know, one thing that has happened because of... uh, this is, you know, if you look at all the, or not all the, but but uh, large section of landowning castes in India wanting reservations in government jobs, this is a clear impact of that, okay? Where our demographic dividend is not working. I mean, this is
0: in fact a dual problem because the thing is that, for example, the Jat agitation, the yes. Haryana, the Maratha agitations here, and different agitations in different, the partidar agitations of Gujarat, I have had occasion to refer to them in multiple episodes on multiple subjects because they also reference, for example, a problem with agriculture because because people in agriculture are effectively trapped in agriculture. What really happens is that with every passing generation, the amount of land holding within a family keeps going down. Because if you have two kids, your land is halved. If you have three, it is one third and so on down the generations. And why you have so many landowning castes across the country, Ijats, Patidars, Marathas, uh, agitating for reservations in these numbers is because agriculture is simply not a way for them to make a living and they need an exit and because our sort of uh, industrial policies and our policies regarding land and labor still haven't been modernized. Unfortunately, the sort of generation of jobs that should have led to uh, this demographic explosion actually being a dividend uh, simply hasn't happened. I mean, when we talk about you have one million people coming into the workforce every month and therefore you need to provide jobs for them. Provide jobs is the loose way of putting it. The point is, it's no one's job to provide jobs. Uh, you yeah. know, a government is not going to provide jobs. It can only create the conditions in which the natural creativity and entrepreneurship of people can thrive and then those industries will happen, those jobs will happen. The truth is that those conditions have never for the most part existed. Uh, yes, you know, the 91 reforms did help a little bit in terms of liberalizing uh, product markets, but not factor markets, not land labor and so on. And we are feeling the effect of those fundamental structural reforms not being made because month after month, every month, 10 lakh, more than 10 lakh people come into the workforce and the jobs aren't there.
1: Right. So, the other impact of this now which is happening, and I think this is the next big dangerous thing, is uh, state governments wanting to reserve jobs for locals. So, it's already, uh, Andhra Pradesh has done it, Uh, the Maharashtra's new uh, three-party government in Mumbai is talking about it. Now, I think this is basically a race to the bottom and puts the entire idea of India at stake. You know, if we cannot even move around in the country... Uh, to get a job, then, you know, where does that uh, leave us? Also, you know, this also gets us into the touchy subject of migration, right? Because within a country, people are bound to move from parts which have less economic activity to parts which have more economic activity. And migration is by far the quickest way of reducing inequality, okay? So if that is not allowed to happen, and you know it's it's a very tricky situation now now look at andhra pradesh it's a new state right uh, i mean and it needs a lot of investment so how do you get that investment i mean companies come and establish factories and offices there now would you expect a private company to go to a state which insists on hiring local labor or would a company go to a state which lets you know hire the best people available for the job right now so so the point i was trying to make uh, you know i think i i said this somewhere in uh, i think in, in Bangalore only where that, you know, imagine if in the late 70s and early 80s, the people who ran the IT policy of Karnataka, even if there was anything like that, would have said that only Karnatigas have to be hired. Right. Uh, or only people who are local to, let's say, Karnataka. I mean, they may not be Karnatakas because Bangalore is full of Tamilians as well and even Telugu's. So would the IT companies have uh, come to Bangalore and established uh, as many you know, uh, companies as they did or even take uh, the example that I, I remember here is when Indian School of Business first came to India uh, or rather when the idea was mooted, it was supposed to be established in Mumbai. What happened was that the Maharashtra government wanted 20% reservation or some such number for the local population, which is an N Chandra Babu when I do saw this as an opportunity because Hyderabad had just started coming up at that point of time. And ISB in Hyderabad would have been this trophy project, which would... Sort of attract a lot of global attention, which it did. And uh, he just seized on the opportunity and just, you know, an ISB ended up in Hyderabad. So, my point is that, uh, you know, how will it will be interesting to see how will companies react to this? Uh, also, how will politicians react to this? Because it's very easy for a politician to just say, ah, okay, we'll reserve, uh, you know, jobs for locals. You know, that again, I mean, it brings us back to how, you know, what we were talking before we came to the studio to record this episode as to how governments and politicians liked to put out simplistic things. Right. So, okay, the jobs are a problem. Okay, we'll not let migrants come in. But is that really the solution? No, because ultimately what you want is economic activity. Right. And when migrants come in. I mean, they do create economic activity. Lots of it, in fact. I mean, they spend money, they eat, they rent homes.
0: They go out, watch movies. In fact, Bombay, like all great cities in the world, is a city built entirely by migrants. And I, I, in fact, had I had a great episode with uh, Chinmay Tumbe on his book, India Moving, which, by the way, I think is a great book, one of the most underrated books of uh, the year, which talks about just internal migration without India and its effects. And I, I, I want to elaborate a bit on this question of simplistic narratives and then come back to you with a question after that which is that I mean what has always been the case but what we've seen more of over the last few years as populism has grown is that these simplistic narratives finding a certain popular validation for example one of the things that distinguished Trump from say Hillary Clinton when he was standing against her in 2016 was his use of powerful simple narratives to explain the problems of the world for example he said that why are there no jobs in middle America two of the simplistic explanations he came up with one immigrants are coming and taking away your jobs and therefore let's stop immigration let's send the mexicans back and two outsourcing is bad your jobs are being shipped overseas so you know let's stop shipping jobs overseas now both of these explanations are completely wrong but both of these are very easy to understand and get behind in a rhetorical sense similarly you've pointed out how in our cities people will often say oh there's a the jobs problem it's migrants are coming and messing it up they are also a problem in our culture and blah, blah, blah. Let's stop migrants. Let's give jobs to locals. I mean, one simplistic narrative that I see coming up in the days to come, and uh, Modi has alluded to it in his speeches, is the population problem, which is not really a problem in my view at all. But because, you know, there is a jobs crisis, I expect him to blame it on our growing population and propose population control measures such as only yeah. two kids per family, which will, of course, which he expects to hit Muslims disproportionately because that is a rhetoric that they have more kids than uh, Hindus do, which is not uh, exactly true, uh, though it is true that the poor have more kids than the rich do, and the Muslims tend to be disproportionately poor. Leaving all of that aside, I mean... No, I, I'll just like to cut in there. And in fact, you know, this, this
1: population thing, and it really... Uh, uh, it's uh, such a huge thing in the minds of people, but it's not really true anymore. Because if you look at the births for women, it has come down to around 2.3. Okay, the replacement rate is 2.1 globally, uh, which basically means that uh, for every hundred uh, you know women, 210 children need to be born to uh, for the population to be the same. Now, in Indian case, because the infant mortality rate is higher, R 2.3 is almost equal to 2.1. Now, uh, so which basically means that our population will start stabilizing in a few decades. And we have done it the right way. We haven't done it the China way, wherein we have limited, uh, you know, the number of kids. And because of that, you know, China has this, uh, you know, there are, you know, parents basically want boys. I'll I'll
0: Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll have two responses to that. And one of them is a disagreement. First response to that is even if it wasn't 2.3, if it was 2.8 or 2.9 or whatever, I don't care. Because, you know, one of the basic fallacies uh, that people tend to hold about economics and society is that more people are a bad thing. That is not the case. Uh, People are what the economist Julian Simon called the ultimate resource. People bring in more than they take out. I mean, a, a classic illustration of this is that look, all migration happens from rural areas to cities, from places which don't have so much population density to places of very high population density. The most prosperous parts of any country are its highly dense cities. Why do people migrate to them? Because more people means larger economic networks, more opportunities, better markets for whatever goods or services or talents that they might have and you can point to say a Bangladesh or an India which are poor countries and say look at the population density but you can also point to a Bahrain or a Monaco which have a greater population density and are far more prosperous uh, so in that sense population isn't a problem at all and of all people our current generation of leaders who grew up during emergency should realize that my second point which is a slight disagreement is I don't think we've got here the right way I think you know we keep talking better
1: about better way
0: than China but you know uh, we keep talking about uh, you know Sanjay Gandhi's uh, force Nasbandi's uh, which happens in the tens of thousands during emergency but it's actually those practices continue to the present day where throughout the country Rural government doctors and healthcare centers are incentivized to do more and more nasbandis and poor uneducated people fall prey to it. And all the problems that we put on, you know, the door of population that this is happening because we have too many people is actually something that governance should be blamed for. All the failures of our governance are... You know ascribe to population and, and I strongly suspect Prime Minister Modi will again do that to explain his failure of not enough jobs by uh, attempting to say that there are too many people, and we should give a response like that uh, we should give an explanation like that the response it deserves if it does come right. about
1: so uh, no, so going back to we were talking about simple and simplistic explanations Correct. so uh, obviously Donald Trump has used it successfully, and so have uh, you know our leaders in india i mean. Look at the explanation for why is there a slowdown in consumer demand. It's because millennials are not buying cars. Now, the explanation is much simpler to sell than, say, something like incomes have risen at a slow pace and hence people have not been spending money or the fact that they don't have much confidence in the economic future or the fact that they have overborrowed in the recent past or the fact that India's so-called demographic dividend is collapsing or the fact that investment in the Indian economy is collapsed. I mean, these are all proper, uh, nuanced, uh, sometimes difficult to understand arguments, right? And, you know, in our daily lives, in our busy lives, we are basically looking for pointers. Now, everything in life cannot be a pointer. But that's why WhatsApp, I mean, we have more uh, graduates graduating out of the University of WhatsApp than... Uh, proper universities these days. So, so, my
0: sort of question for you, which was coming on from the simplistic thing, is that simplistic narrative sell, like the nativism in our cities, right. or like farm loan waivers will solve the problem of agriculture. So given that I think both of us would agree that a lot of good politics makes for bad economics, what is a way out of this?
1: I mean, see, ultimately, you know, as a politician, as, as a leader, you know, you need to be, how do I put it? Uh, thinking of the longer term yeah you, know. you need to do the right things but, yeah. but I mean, unless
0: you I but mean I died, know it's a you're very, tied to the election cycle no you to win the yes, next election but then
1: I mean so you know I mean it's not like uh, reforms haven't happened in other countries and people haven't won elections exactly right? so uh, so, the problem in India is that no leader ever has tried to explain the utility of economic reforms to people. We've always tried to push, uh, you know, reform by stealth. You know, wherein we are in a crisis and so we have to do this. So, no questions asked. So, we push this through. So, that sort of gives a bad name to economic reforms. But, I mean, lo- look at the fact that, you know, what happened in 1991 when the economy was uh, opened up, uh, large parts of the economy were opened up for the private sector. I mean, look at the kind of wealth uh, and prosperity it has created. More obviously, than,
0: More than 350 million people brought out of and poverty.
1: Obviously, not uh, for everyone. It has also led to, uh, I mean, you. I know you don't agree that India has... I mean, inequality is not an issue in India because poverty is an issue. I think no, when most and inequality is. A, huh, I mean, yeah. yes. So you know, it probably hasn't pulled enough people out of poverty, and
0: uh, but it has you know done its uh, fair share of it, things. Let, let me put it like this: I think it's pulled 350 million people out of poverty, and there is still a great task which has moral significance, which is to pull the remaining people who are still in poverty out mm. of poverty, and that hasn't happened because we haven't reformed fast enough or gone far enough. So,
1: so someone has to sort of you know. I mean, look at our Prime Minister. He gives uh, so many speeches, does so many election rallies. I mean, he's connected to the public. I mean, it's it's a broadcast, yes, but he's connected to the public probably more than any other leader in the recent past. So, I think the buck stops with him because, uh, you know, a finance minister can only be as good as as the Prime Minister is. I mean, as as much support as he or she gets from the Prime Minister. Having said that, I mean, as I said, you know, we need to do uh, a lot of things which governments uh, know about. All governments know about this. I mean, you have to bring in land and labor reforms, tax reforms, Look at the fact that uh, education is a huge problem these days. I mean, so while there is unemployment, at the same time, uh, when companies advertise for jobs, they do not get uh, people with adequate skill sets. Most of our engineers are unemployable. Uh, people who sort of uh, go through the school system cannot read, write, do basic math properly. So in fact, that, that
0: that's like you pointed out one of the great ironies which we've addressed in every episode on education that I've done, for uh-huh. example, that there is a, this mismatch between demand and supply. There might be a jobs crisis, yes, but even for jobs that are available, there aren't enough skilled people and you have like uh, thousands of PhDs applying for uh, uh, jobs available of a peon, which right. means that uh, the market for education is failing. And What I again point out is that all the sectors which were privatized and allowed to, uh, where the private sector was fully allowed to operate, like airlines or telephones or whatever, which I remember in the 80s were uh, government monopolies. We have all thrived. there. tremendous value has been created. Everyone can, you know, many more people can afford that value. But in education, where there is still such a strong government control over the sector, you know, there's just been, uh, uh, you know, the outcomes are... Uh, so uh,
1: yeah I mean in fact you know people who complain about call drops these days have no idea as to how you know fixed line phones used to be dead for days at end yeah because you know the lineman wouldn't have been bribed properly
0: no and this goes back to the demographic <laughs> dividend that one sign of the demographic dividend is that 60% of the country is born after 1991 but what this also means is that this 60% has no lived experience of what life was like uh, under those socialist days yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean when you had only one TV channel when you had one TV channel we should operate only in the evenings it would take you 5 years to get a telephone a tele- line yeah, yeah. it would and that was actually a time where uh, a, a used car was worth more than a brand new car because you could buy a used car immediately you could buy a used car immediately a brand new car would take 6 came, years to yeah. come so so
1: i i remember you know our telephone connection in rachi uh, i think papa first applied for it in 1983 we finally got it in 1992 there you go yeah. 9 years
0: yeah can you even imagine now that? you
1: can just get it in under nine minutes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of problems with the current system, but it is...
0: But there's no comparison with what... You have to unleash private (laughs) enterprise, which simply uh, hasn't happened. And for people who haven't, uh, you know, uh, read my columns on this before, I quickly want to Clarify the point Vivek was making about inequality and poverty that I think in India our key problem is poverty because the pie is not fixed. Inequality is not an issue we should worry about simply because as what happens in developing countries like India and the data shows us is that as poverty goes down, inequality inevitably goes up. It doesn't mean the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer or staying poor. Everybody is getting richer except the rich are getting richer faster, which leads to increased inequality, but which also leads to people coming out of poverty. This is also, uh, you know, people moving to cities is also an illustration of this because cities have far more inequality than towns do and yet people come there because that is a way to get out of poverty. So India's problem is poverty, not inequality. Inequality has become a fashionable term and a lot of people when they complain about inequality, they are, they actually mean poverty. And, and poverty is our moral imperative. That's what we have to solve. And the kind of policies which would tackle poverty and inequality are very different and almost opposite in some cases, which is why I feel that that distinction, which otherwise seems merely semantic, uh, is uh, important.
1: So, you know, we are talking about things that need to be done. Now, one of the things is, you know, if you look at uh, the ability of tax authorities to harass us, continues to remain high. In fact, I was just reading a news report a few days back wherein, you know, the tax authorities have been asked to raise their income tax collections, right? Now, you know, in an economy which is growing at 7% nominally, uh, the income tax collections cannot grow at 20%, right? So when you force them to sort of raise collections, how is that going to happen? That's only going to happen through uh, harassment. And the moment you, you start harassing entrepreneurs, I mean, you are essentially uh, helping kill the entire idea of... uh Entrepreneurship. I, I, mean, mean, I
0: mean, the term people use for this is tax terrorism.
1: Right. So, uh, so this this has to go. And, you know, there are no silver bullets as such. I mean, there are the, all these points which have been written about, debated about.
0: Labour laws, lab, laws. Everything, everything. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: all well known. It's not like they don't know. about. I mean, what I find funny is when, you know, the Minister of Finance asks for suggestions from people on what she should do in the budget. I mean, I just find that. Bizarre Yeah I mean as if She doesn't know What is to be done And if she doesn't know She doesn't (laughs) As if a lot of it Wasn't in their 2014
0: manifesto Yeah I mean it's all there I had the congress politician Salman Sos On my show a few months ago And he was saying How when Mr. Modi Came to power in 2014 He in the congress Was actually a little bit hopeful Because there was a lot In their manifesto Which he agreed with In terms of reforms And they've carried out None of those in fact, these days, there's this, uh, I mean, what I find really uh,
1: bizarre is that there is this small-scale industry which has come up, which thinks that redistribution will lead to economic growth. I mean, I find that, I mean, you know, whether you are in favor of redistribution or against it is a different argument, but redistribution has not led
0: to development anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. I mean… There's uh, a trade-off between redistribution and growth, right, and, and sometimes you make that trade-off on the side of redistribution because you feel it's a moral imperative, you have to help right. the poor but you should have to be aware that there is a trade off they yes, cannot go that. And, and
1: also you know uh, redistribution can also only happen once some wealth has been created right you cannot like you know i remember this line uh, from this there uh, was this movie which keetan Mehta made with shahrukh khan and his wife deepa it was called oh darling yeh india and there is a line in the in the title song of the movie uh, which which goes jo bacha nahi wo diya so yeah, what right. you haven't saved that also you are distributing i mean so obviously you are going to get so redistribution beyond the point where uh, there is, I mean, what do you redistribute? You need to no, first and, and earn uh, that uh, money to redistribute You know, this goes right. to
0: the point that people often make about the Scandinavian states, that what about the Scandinavian states, their welfare states? Yes. But I mean, the but point to note is that they were incredible free markets ah. until the point that they got so massively prosperous that on their small scales, yes. uh, they could actually afford to become welfare states and tax a lot and redistribute a lot. And, and they actually started turning back on some of that when it started hurting, but they were already at very no, levels. also,
1: what people don't get is that as far as entrepreneurship is concerned, it still th- thrives uh, out there. I mean, exactly. people are encouraged. Yeah. So, uh, being a welfare state doesn't mean that you don't you'd, let people do business. You'd, yeah, exactly. And so over this here is something still that people have. don't uh, get. What about Scandinavia? Are we per capita income to And also, you know, like Kelker
0: so, and Shah in their book, they make a very interesting observation also where they point out that one data point worth looking at very closely is the flight of millionaires. And this might seem completely irrelevant to a poor country that let the millionaires go, what difference does it make? But the point is, these are your wealth creators who uh, generate jobs, who generate employment, who generate growth, who are all choosing to uh, leave en masse. And what you do not see, what is seen as a flight of these millionaires, but what is then unseen is the many other prospective millionaires who don't come up, who would in a counterfactual because you've created conditions that are antithetical if you want to create. Yeah, if I mean, you so want to
1: ultimately you know, growth is the only antidote to Exactly. poverty and this is a simple point that you know which our politicians don't seem to understand and by politicians i don't just mean the current set but the whole but, the whole but all of
0: them thing. in general i mean uh, yeah you know one one interesting observation that i completely agree with that which our friend shruti and who's also a frequent guest i made in a column which came out today we are recording on december 24th is uh, that this what, what is happening in india currently both in social terms with the CAA and all of this and also in economic terms, displays the government's social engineering mindset or you could say the engineering mindset where they have a vision of society and they want to create it with all of these top-down actions, whether it is in a social context or whether it is in the economic context. And there still isn't the realization that social engineering never works. It always has terrible unintended consequences that what the job of a state is to protect the rights of everyone every individual and then let them interact freely within the rule of law so that everyone can, uh, you know, reach their full potential. So, you know, so why don't you share the Mao example also? Right. So the Mao example which Kelkar and Shah used in their book, which is uh, something that, you know, right after demonetization happened, the first column I wrote for the Times of India after that, the example I gave was how Mao decided that because sparrows were destroying crops, all sparrows should be killed. So he gave an edict, kill all sparrows, right? It's his attempt at saving crops. But what happened was that the fragile ecosystem went completely out of whack, the sparrows were killed, and insects, especially locusts proliferated, and the crops were destroyed anyway. And it was a massive economic disaster. Now, what this tells you is that a certain kind of social engineering on such a grand scale is flawed, even if you cannot predict exactly what will happen. People may not have known the ecosystem so well to know that if sparrows are killed, locusts will destroy the crops. But simply because there are all these massive unintended consequences, that you should keep your interventions as small and local and measurable and reversible as possible. All points which Scalcar and Shah make in the episode you'll hear next week. And, And for For that reason, you know, such social engineering always backfires. And it's similar to what Modi tried with demonetization. That's a comparison I uh, then made and which Gilkaran Shah also made in this book that such grand attempts at social engineering always fail and yet we have this engineering mindset all around us where people imagine that because they can design a machine or they can run a company that they can actually design an economy and construct a society and that simply isn't possible it is always bound to fail and has led to nothing but heartbreak and misery every time it's been tried through the 20th century by both the left wing and the right wing
1: right so, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we still haven't talked about is uh, uh, 2019 was also the year when uh, our monetary policy went for a toss.
0: What is monetary policy for a, for my listeners? Just explain.
1: Monetary policy is basically the uh, interest rate policy that the nation's central bank decides on. So Which the RBI decides. Which the RBI in the Indian case through the uh, Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, decides on, so they decide to sort of either uh, raise or uh, you know decrease what is called as what is called the repo rate. So repo rate is the rate at which uh, the RBI gives loans to banks. So, Shakti Kantadas, Das led RBI has uh, cut the repo rate by uh, 135 basis points from 6.5% to five point one five percent The hope was that banks would also cut uh, interest rates uh, as the RBI cut the repo rate. Now, what has happened instead is that uh, if you look at the uh, weighted average lending rate of banks, instead of going down, it's gone up so it's gone up from around 10.35% uh, at the beginning of the year to 10.4% uh you know i think as of october if i remember correctly so uh now what has happened i mean this is something that a lot of people are baffled uh, about And, you know, what you need to understand here is, again, if you are the kind who just reads Times of India, Mm -hmm. uh, you will see that every time there is a repo rate cut, the next day the headline that is run is repo rate cut, home loan EMIs, EMIs, whatever, vehicle EMIs to come down. But that's not how it actually works. Now, uh, how does a bank operate? You know, a bank borrows money uh, from all of us and then it lends money at a higher rate. Now, if you look at the cost of uh, borrowing, which is primarily through uh, deposits. So, if you look at the cost of borrowing of term deposits of banks, it's gone down slightly in the last, uh, since the beginning of this year, it's gone down by around 12 basis points. Okay, And uh, the RBI has cut rate by 135 basis points. Mm -hmm. So, unless the cost of deposits come down, the lending rate on loans will not come down. I mean, this is as basic as it gets. The RBI can keep cutting the repo rate. Now, why is the cost of deposits not coming down? Now, if you remember what we sort of talked about earlier, I had said that the financial savings, the net financial savings of India as a whole has come down in the last few years, okay? And I explain as to why it has come down. Now, in this scenario, uh, banks, in order to encourage people to save, need to offer them a good rate of interest. So, they are not in a position to cut interest rates or not as much as the RBI wants them to. The other thing that has happened, and a lot of people don't seem to know about this, is that the overall public sector borrowing And uh, by this, I mean the real deficit run by the central government, uh, these fiscal deficits of the state governments, the borrowings of organizations like the Food Corporation of India. Uh, This has gone up over the years. I mean, it used to be around 8% of the GDP. Now it's more than 9%. So in an environment where the financial savings have come down, government borrowing is going up. So, in this environment, expecting interest rates to fall uh, is a little silly, okay? So, uh, now what does this tell us? It tells us as to how intricately linked everything is in the economy, right? I mean, you know, it, it tells us as to given the fact that India has gone the way it has, where investment is not happening because of that consumption is being financed through savings and because consumption is being financed through increased savings, you know, savings have fallen and because of that, banks cannot cut interest rates on their deposits and because of that, they can't cut interest rates on their loans. So it's all, you know, in economics, they used to teach the vicious circle of poverty. India is poor because India is poor. So this is sort of, you know, uh, the vicious circle of India's lack of economic growth. I mean, if we can call it that. So this is something that, you know, has to be tackled. The only way it can be tackled is through increased savings. Right. Now, if how will people increase savings? One is if they consume less. But if they consume less, it hurts the economy. Right. So the way to increase savings is essentially to increase incomes. Now, in order to increase incomes, investment has to happen for investment to happen, the government has to create the right conditions also before that, the consumption slowdown has to unravel because businesses won't invest until uh, you know consumers start consuming so. To sort of uh, solve that problem, you know, one of the things that the government could have done is to cut down on um, the personal income tax rates, but they chose to cut down on uh, corporate taxes, which helped no one because it just helped uh, push up corporate earnings and money did not end up in the hands of people who could spend it. So, yeah, I mean, so this is basically, you know, how intricately linked everything is. And at times
0: it's not the solutions are not... uh, No, and I have like two thoughts kind of strike me in response to this. One is, of course, how incredible perverse it is that while private savings are going down, government borrowing is going up, that while uh, private consumption is uh, growing at a slower pace, government spending is going up, you know, and the one way of getting out of this vicious cycle where we are saving less and spending less because we have lower incomes is, of course, like you pointed out, a cut in the personal income tax rate so that people just have uh, more to uh, sort of uh, you leave more money with the people to spend so that they will spend more and save more and that can help us uh, come out of that cycle. The other sort of thing that struck me was how you pointed out that everything is so intricately linked, which is also why People in government imagine that with public policy by using different levers, one lever here, one lever there, they can influence the process, not having the humility to realize that the process is so deeply complicated that every intervention has unintended consequences. And and therefore, you're better off sticking to certain first principles. Um, and basically,
1: not... you're better off just letting people carry out honest entrepreneurial activity. As long as you do that, you know you will get your share of taxes people will make their share of income and but as you know it's it's easier said than done so
0: right so so you know so tell me you've looked at the economy very closely for like 15 16 years or whatever and year on year you know things have changed you look at the data How have your feelings about what is happening evolved over this time? And do you feel that 2019 is particularly worse? Is there reason to be uh, uh, worried? Like, uh, I mean, yes, I mean,
1: 2019 has been worse from the data point of view. There is no denying that. But I think what I find more worrying and, and I've said this many times before is the brazenness uh, of this uh, government. In not admitting that there is a problem. I mean, as I say uh, over and over again, how do you solve a problem without admitting admitting to it, right? So, I mean, so unless you do that, I mean, yeah. So, I hope in 2020 they see, I mean, they lose a few more elections and finally some sense comes in, so.
0: Yeah, but it's less likely to lead to economic reforms and more likely to lead to social polarization. Even
1: even more uh, rhetoric of the kind that is not good for the health I mean I'm just here. waiting
0: for them to come up with the population rhetoric and blame the failures of governments on too many people I'm, that's so totally going to happen we've kind of you know spoken about 2019 and how dismal it has been in 2020 uh, what will save us and you know one of the things I think about in these troubled times is that what will save us is art like I, I look around me and not just in the protest movements, but even in general, the quality of cartooning has just gone to a yes. new level because there is so much happening that is so surreal that, uh, you know, uh, comics have so much material to uh, play with. Not in just fact, uh, I was
1: just thinking about it the other day and that, um, so there used to be one of the big uh, protest poets in Pakistan was a gentleman called Habib Jalib, hmm. And uh, he wrote some of his best poetry uh, under the dictatorship of uh, Ziaul Haq. And uh, a couple of his, uh, you know, famous uh, poems. One is uh, called Main Nahi and the other is called uh, Hukmara. It's essentially about intellectuals who uh, kowtow to the government. And he'd written it on this other big Pakistani poet called Hafiz Jalandhari, who had essentially uh, become an advisor to Ayub Khan. Anyway, I mean, that's that's different. But what I'm trying to say is that Habib Jalib uh, would have been proud uh, with the kind of protest poetry that's coming out now, especially the one that uh, you know Varun Grover,
0: uh, nahi which is brilliant n- and which yeah. which works for all seventy-two years of India, boss. If you if you yeah. kind of look at, the I mean, the simplicity so of yeah. is 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 just. I mean, the way he captures uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the emotion is just superb. Yeah, uh, it's just superb and similar sound and say, I think same number of syllables as to which is the yeah, point yeah,
1: which I think. is the point right yeah it's brilliant I mean, which is hum how Kaagos he we will not show we will not show we will make a so this is something by uh, I mean I wish I could write uh, poetry like the way our great Urdu poets do so this is a poem by Rahat uh, Indu, not a poem it's just a couplet by Rahat Indori who is uh, one of the greatest urdu poets alive, and it's uh, in the context of whatever is happening in india right now and and he says Brilliant. so you know it's very difficult to build the most simple of things, so forget about You know, big things like demonetization and... and, and We were adamant
0: that we will build a new sun and yet we are sweating over a mere candle on the spot, off-the-cuff translation by me. Please forgive if something went wrong. No, 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 it's
1: it's, uh, perfectly right. So, in fact, you have a job coming up as a translator. I I have no (laughs) job. Given that both of us, uh, you know, the economic activities that we indulge in aren't really (laughs) happening. So we are poor podcasters who are doing this for the love of it and the greater benefit of uh, mankind. human humankind. Humankind, humankind, not mankind. Not mankind. Yeah, yeah. Kindly Sorry.
0: watch your language. Yes, we shall I'm instantly probably. cancel you. Yeah. Uh, all episodes of the Vivek call will disappear from the scene and the scene <laughs> archives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So should I ask you the hope and despair question, boss? Yes, sure. sure. Okay, so consider it asked. <laughs> what gives you <laughs> hope and what gives you despair? I mean, About 2020, since we were speaking at the granular uh, level of a year. I think... Uh,
1: The despair is obviously what is happening all around us and and the fact that uh, the media has been so subdued. In fact, uh, you know, one tends to get more news uh, from what people share on the social media now than uh, the real media. I mean, like uh, the other day, there was this huge uh, march in Dharavi, I mean, which barely made it to the newspapers, whereas uh, it was there all over the uh, social media. So that is the huge uh, and the fact that so many educated people, so many people in my immediate, you know, some of my best friends, uh, immediate family uh, buy this uh, entire idea of uh, NRC and uh, and uh, the citizen amendment uh, thing. So I find that very, very uh, uh, disturbing because I mean, uh, when the people you're closest to believe in these things, I mean, how do you talk to them? Or in, more than that, why should you talk to them? Exactly. Forget, how do you talk to them? So that really is is disturbing me. Uh, the hope, obviously, at the end of the day, as I've always said, is the people of India, because, uh, I mean, and that's been shown in the last uh, few days where uh, people have actually come out, uh, you know, against what, uh, you know, Modi and Shah have been trying to do. And uh, so that gives you hope. And, and you know, the funny thing is, and I was just uh, thinking about it the other day that, uh, you know, when Ms. Modi made this speech in Delhi and he said that uh, whatever he did about NRC and... Full of lies, by and, the and, way. All yeah, of and, them yeah, have been and, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, Amit Shah had sort of uh, contradicted it. Over and over again. So I was, I was just wondering ki, uh, you know, has Narendra Modi also uh, reached a stage where he's become the Mukhota of uh, the BJP?
0: Whereas I think that's wishful thinking I think without necessarily thinking of it in those terms they're kind of playing good cop bad cop and also a large part of the population will believe anything they say so Modi can just say ah, whatever so, so the hell the he thing. wants
1: that's the thing you know what they're basically doing is that uh, you know one guy is saying one thing the other guy is saying <laughs> the other thing and basically all kinds of audience is taken care of
0: so. I mean I'm going to invoke the philosopher Harry Frankfurt here Harry Frankfurt wrote the superb essay in 1986 which later was released as a book in 2003 called On Bullshit Mm. where he said that bullshit is different from lies. Lies is when you care about the truth, you acknowledge the truth, but you choose to deliberately deceive somebody by lying. Bullshit it has no relationship with the truth. You don't care if what you are saying is true or untrue, you just say it at the spur of the moment, because it sounds good. And it's a thing to say. And this is true for a lot of things Donald Trump uh, says on Twitter. And once, of course, having come up with some spontaneous bullshit, he will always keep doubling down on it. But I think of, for example, Modi's speech, as Jack, of course, it was full of untruths. But was he lying? Or was he bullshitting? And that's that's a question I'll leave it to listeners to answer. Hmm. Any final comments? You did not mention what gives you hope?
1: I said the hopes, the people, I mean, the the only, the 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 people, right? I mean, and people as in the, you know, at least some of them who'll probably end up doing the right thing. Uh, Not all of them, actually, so.
0: Yeah, so on that, uh, on that bleak yet hopeful note, uh, we shall end this episode of The Scene and the Unseen. Thanks for coming on the show, man, Vivek. Thanks, Samit, for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, Hop on over to your nearest bookstore online or offline and search for Vivek Call by every book he has written do not search for my name and uh, you can follow Vivek on Twitter at call underscore Vivek uh, you can follow me at Amit Varma. that's A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A you can browse past episodes of the Seen and the Unseen at seenunseen.in and thinkpragati.com The Seen and the Unseen is supported by the Takshashila Institution you can read more about them at Takshashila.org. Thank you for listening and have a good year.